Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. Welcome, One Broken Cog Podcast listeners. Got a treat for you today. So I ran into Robert Greiner the other day, and I said, hmm, what's going on here? What is really going on? He said, well, what are you talking about? Well, you look at his background, and this is a first-class prime example of a super engineer. Great education, great training, great pedigree, and I can't really mention some of the companies that he's been with, but here is a full-fledged person that if you're in the engineering business, anybody would want to hire. But then I'm reading his LinkedIn profile, and he says, I believe strongly in a human-centric leadership approach. Now, from an engineering perspective, that is kind of interesting. He says, very few initiatives fail because of a lack of aptitude. Rather, the people involved are not effectively mobilized to succeed. Building and cultivating strong teams paired with effective relationship management and communication are the foundations of lasting success. So either I was reading two different people or I've got somebody who is really different. I said, I got to get him one. So welcome, Robert. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. I'm honored oh, to be here. Our pleasure. So take the audience, if you will, take them back in time. Take them through you know, how you got involved with engineering, what that was all about, and how you've morphed into being somebody who's more human-centric, more human-oriented. And while we're there, I might even stop you while we're doing it, if children had anything to do with that, add that in. But take everybody back to how this all happened. Yeah, great, great question. So I've always had computers in my house uh, growing up. So my dad's business was buying old cars and fixing them and reselling them. And then when the information age, computer age started up, it was the same model, but with computers. Like you used to make, be able to make pretty good money repairing yes. existing hardware. And so I, I've always had computers in my house for as long as I can remember, which is great because based on my age, I, I probably shouldn't have been exposed to them until 10 years later. Uh, and so that was good. I always had a, a familiarity with them. And uh, when I was trying to decide my major for college, I just picked computer science because I was thinking, oh, this is pretty much all I'm good at. I don't really, I can't really think of anything else I want to do. So I'll just go into college and start there. Uh, and see where it takes me. And I didn't realize at the time that that was a really, really smart move, like building a competency around software development, around programming, front-end, back-end database, whatever, any, anything where you're creating uh, or supporting the creation of software is, is a good business to be in. And so it pretty much college went smoothly, had a couple of programming type jobs in college, saw a flyer for a defense company, my junior year and said, Oh, that sounds pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to go work there, got an internship and just very smoothly got into the field of software engineering. Uh, and I have, I have a math and physics background as well. And so I like the simulation and hardcore kind of math and engineering concepts that, that pair along nicely with software development. So I really feel like I was in my zone. I was, you know, writing code every day, working in a lab, everything was fine. Um, and a couple of things happened though. One was I had always sort of fancied myself as a detail oriented introvert because all 
software engineers, especially when I was going through college and, and a little bit before, the stereotype was, was very much in that vein. And I just thought, hey, that's who I am. And it turns out after taking some behavioral assessments, that's not the case. I'm extroverted and not detail-oriented at all. And so it was kind of funny to see that play through my career, really feeling the, the tension that's involved with being in a situation and not knowing yourself well enough to, or, or, this, or the situation well enough to really name the, the, the feeling that you have internally is, is kind of frustrating. And I think any human can, can relate to that. Uh, and so as I progressed my career, what I found the most satisfaction in was helping other people become really great software craftsmen, software craftswomen, right? And uh, I remember when I was at Southwest, I in, I was on the .com team writing code for Southwest.com. And so that that's pretty cool in and of itself because you're building software that millions of people will will use over the course of a year. And I remember inheriting this team where the, the entire team were seasoned software developers, but they came from another area of the business that was a, a lot of legacy code, a lot of okay. legacy software. And I was I was put on the team to kind of help get everyone up to speed on this new uh, technology, these new technologies, these new systems. And so I took it very seriously and I created uh, presentations and helped do code reviews and install modern development practices. And after a six month period, Every, we were indistinguishable from the other pods that had been writing code on .com for years. And I remember thinking, well, th th I got a lot more satisfaction out of helping this team grow than, uh, than I did building software that, you know, anonymously a bunch of, a bunch of people are going to end up using. And it was, it, was more it was more real for me, right? And I could actually see the progress and development over time. And so I've, I've sort of been chasing that, that feeling ever since. And, and you pair it with, and I know you, you know, this as well, like at the time I had expertise power, right? I, I knew how to write modern software. Yes. I was sharing my knowledge with the team. I got respect. People listened to me because of what I knew, but that's not really a sustainable career strategy. What you really need is relationship power because the role power you get with getting promoted, that's a double-edged sword. Every time you wield that role power so you you diminish your the trust you have with your team so the the optimal career strategy the optimal leadership strategy at all times is to lead through building great relationships with the team and mobilizing that team to accomplish more than any group of subset of the team could on their own and i'll, I'll just end by saying i mean you, you see this all the time there are teams that should absolutely succeed on paper Everyone has the skills that they need, and then they, they fall flat, right? A lot of teams fail solving solve problems because they're dysfunctional, because they don't work well together. And that starts at the leadership level on down. And so for me, at this point in my career, that's a much more interesting problem to solve. I get a lot more satisfaction out of building and developing others. So let's, let's go back. It's pretty interesting. Let's go backwards for a second. So you were talking before about you weren't an introvert, you weren't detail-oriented. Did you have a sense that there was something disconnected or that you should be getting more satisfaction out of what you're doing? Or what were kind of some of the indicators that said, hey, wait a minute, something isn't right? Yeah, so I, I remember that I really liked, um, and, and my sort of claim to fame in software development is, is actually like bug fixing, fixing defects, 
getting into the guts of the code and figuring out what's wrong, tweaking it, patching it, making it better than I found it, and moving on. And, and two things that I really did not succeed at very well as a software developer were when you hit file new project and you had to set everything up, even though that's, a, that's kind of a known set of steps, it's, uh, it, it's not interesting in that it's, it's very repeatable and there's okay. not a lot of coolness that goes on at the beginning. Or when you have basically a, a group of people developing over in silo A, another group developing in silo B, and you have to merge everybody's code into the main, what we call a branch, into what actually gets deployed. And that's a painstaking process. And I remember being in charge of some of those merges and just thinking, this is terrible. Like, this is not fun at all. And so there, there are moments in time in my career as I reflect where I was thinking, well, I don't like, software, I don't like these areas of software development whatsoever. I just liked sort of the, uh, some of the like dramatic, more flashy in-depth, like hardcore problem solving. And so, and, and, and in my mind, that's an analytical exercise. That's not a detail-oriented exercise. But I didn't know that. And so I would, I would find myself in these situations being completely frustrated when uh, it's just one of those things that you're doing something that you're not wired to do that you don't enjoy doing. But again, I didn't know that about myself. So it just manifested it in tension and uh, discomfort. And when... This is this is absolutely fascinating because this is so feeding into what into where you are today. So, was there anybody in the organization from either an HR perspective or a career planning perspective or management that said, um, "Hey, Robert, have you thought of this? Hey, Robert, have you thought of that? Hey, Robert, how do you see yourself? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? You know, what do you see as as your values? Uh, what kind of culture will you fit bed in? Was was there any of that going on at all?" Not until later. I spent the first half of my career in the dark as far as that goes, right? Um, it wasn't until I joined the firm I'm at now where we did um, behavioral assessments. And then we had people sit down and, and train us around what those meant and go into some of the science behind it. And, and once I learned that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is wrong. First, I thought this is, this is incorrect. I took the test wrong. I need to retake it. And then I dug into the details with the uh the instructor and then also when you know it's like you buy a blue car and then all you see are blue cars right correct correct then it's like okay well I, if i'm not detail oriented uh let me let me go and talk to someone who is and and now it's like night and day like <laughs> you would not no, no one would ever believe me that i'm that i'm detail oriented or introverted right and so i think it's it's the combination of taking that assessment having the conversations around it being skeptical at first and then really seeing the difference between you and someone who really is wired that other way. And that, that was really the beginning where then I had the vocabulary to go and ask advice, ask mentors questions, ask my leaders questions and advice around where to move forward from there. Uh, but before then, no, no, no one ever sat me down and said, hey, you might be feeling this way or you didn't do so hot on that merge because you know what? You might not be detail oriented. Like, let's talk through that. Let's get to the bottom of it. And so part of the human-centric approach that I talked about earlier is, is very much that. And everyone on my team takes the, the same behavioral assessments. And it doesn't even matter which one you take. But if you, again, if you have that vocabulary around it, then you can go in a coaching kind of mentality and talk through what you like, what you don't like. And then either you have to recognize when you're in a situation where your strengths are not able to manifest themselves, or you have to surround yourself with people who 
have opposite strengths so that they offset what you're, uh, what you're naturally going to lack. So, so let me, let me change you just a little bit. I'm going to put a pause in this. I'm going to, I'm going to go sideways a little bit on you. So you're, I mean, you're, you're reasonably intelligent. You have a good sense of analysis, so this shouldn't be too difficult for you, but I am going to throw you a, a bit of a curveball. So if you think about the organizations you were working at where they, where they didn't help you identify this, they're paying you a pretty decent salary. If you're in software engineering, you're getting paid a pretty good salary. How much do you think they lost in productivity from you, which translates into money by not helping you understand this? Yeah, 10, 10x. They, the, the typical rule of thumb for uh, developers who are really solid in their craft and some that are just uh, basically going through the motions is, is right around 10x. And, Translate uh, that can, for the people listening. What do you mean 10x? So if, if you get paid $100,000 a year, uh, you sh let's say that and you're delivering $200,000 $200, worth of value the, as a 10xer, as a multiplier, the, the people who are just going through the motions might be delivering $20,000 worth of value. And, and I specifically mentioned a, a less amount of value than you're paid because I think that is, is a truth, especially when economic times are good. You, you see a lot of companies overreaching to, to hire talent. There's a scarcity uh, of talent out there. And I think when you put people who are not really mobilized to succeed, who are not given the tools about uh, their own personal understanding or the, the tools to actually create software, uh, you're you're just putting a drag on overall productivity, and then that multiplies the more people that you add. It would be the same thing as if you're trying to to build a house and you didn't have a hammer or any power tools, right? It's just you you might be able to do it, but the quality is not going to be there, and it's going to take ten times as long as you think it is. And I think that very much uh, applies to software development. It's just you can't see it as easily because it's much harder to measure, and you have so many people working on it that those things just kind of fall through the cracks. Yeah, but it, but it is interesting because, and you kind of alluded to this, um, people get promoted, but if the person isn't really ideal for the job and they get promoted, then they probably aren't ideal for the next job. And then they, then they impact the people beneath them. Then they get promoted again. Now they impact more people. So I, I think there is a really interesting conversation buried in here and it's, I think it is an HR conversation about how the mismatch is costing organizations a lot, a lot of money, and quite frankly, a lot of competitiveness. Absolutely. So Liz Weissman, uh, and I think Greg McCown wrote a book called Multipliers that talks about this concept. So in engineering, you're, you're in this scarce resource mentality. You don't have enough people to do the work you need, and then you're not using them as effectively. So instead of I would say that there are a few team situations where I really felt like a multiplier. The Southwest example is one of them, right? Where I was taking my skills, I was contributing to the velocity of the team, but I was also helping everyone else around me be better. Mm -hmm. And so I view that as a multiplying act where my efforts were scaled and the team got more done uh, collectively than we would have apart or without that effort. Uh, and then you have, you, you know, people who are adders, right? That's, that's fine too. You're just sort of linearly contributing, but you're moving things forward. And they have the opposite side of those, which are subtractors and dividers. And I think if you're not careful, 
you can turn a lot of multipliers into adders, a lot of adders into subtractors, a lot of subtractors into dividers, not only by how effectively you uh, work on building and cultivating a team mindset, but also you've seen this in, in your career, I know, where this dysfunction sets in, people are out uh, for their own self-interest, the organization's making silly rules around what hours you can come in and work and how much to get done. And they're measuring bizarre things that don't make any sense and they're not communicating it well. And then you get people who, instead of being really jazzed about solving a hard problem, they're like, you know what? I'm just going to leave that until next week. I'll pick that up later. And then you do that hundreds and thousands of times across dozens of people across five, six, seven years. And you're not even close. You're not even close to where you could be. And so there, there's a lot of nuance there. And, and if you make a 1% improvement, or, or help someone become an adder who was a subtractor, to use the multiplier's language, over time does make a, an enormous impact. Yeah, I mean, our, our entire uh, practice of that one broken cog is based around trying to identify those kinds of things as they impact revenue generation or sales. Because, I mean, we don't, we don't touch things like software development. We don't touch things like operations per se, unless it's, unless it's impacting sales. And there are so many... Um, I mean, I, I tell the, the story where Brian, my partner, was uh, pulled into a plastic surgery office in Southern California, and they said, hey, you know, we're doing a lot of advertising, we're getting, we're getting a lot of interest, but we don't seem to be able to convert those deals. Um, can you help us figure out how to, how to get these people into selling shape? So he walked in thinking that it was a, gee, I've got a sales problem issue because that's what the client thought, and when he picked his head up about 90 days later or so, and he went back to do a report to them. He said, you know, I've identified at this point 35 things, whether they're processes, attitudes, policies, documentation, et cetera, that you're doing wrong that are impacting your sales. And it doesn't matter how good your salespeople are because these things will slow them down. And they had no idea, none whatsoever. But I, I, I want to come back to, um, let's come back to a couple of things. And I want to get into where we are more so currently. So you, you, what drove you to say, I've got to get out of the environment I'm in. I've got to go find either a new job or a new way of life. Was, was there an event or was this just a culmination of this stuff bubbling up over time? What was it? Yeah. And, and that, that's a good question. So I'm pretty much a, a corporate animal. Like I don't really yeah. have a desire to, to go off on my own, start my own business. Like I, I like working in, in organizations. What I found though was I would get really bored and therefore let's call it disgruntled because of that, that boredom or some of these tensions that manifested that we talked about earlier. And so what I would do is I would just leave. Right. And there's a lot of risk when you go and find a new job. Yes. And so I, I chose poorly a couple of times and things weren't as good as I thought they would be. And you know, I thought I would write code forever and I was going through this transition. Uh, and then I got, introduced to the idea of consulting, which I really love for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's fast paced. It keeps you interested. There's a lot of change and I thrive on change, but also you get to, you get a home base. I've worked for the same company now, almost nine years. I've worked on dozens of dozens of clients, some as long as four years, others as long as three days. Uh, and, and so I think that for me and how I'm wired, that makes a lot of sense. But what I opted into in the consulting realm is a lot more breadth of responsibility around the skills and behaviors I needed to demonstrate, not just 
problem solving in a lab by myself or with a small team, there's a lot more as your career grows that, that you need to be accountable for, including uh, solutioning, business development, those kind of things. Yeah, you, you also talked, I wanted to touch on just for a moment, that when you, when you actually arrived at this, the new organization, that they did personality tests on you. And I, I wanted to get your, your feedback on this because there's a lot that's being written, specifically one of the fellows who's writing on this quite a bit is a, is a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Hardy. He's a PhD. He's relatively young, but his writing is really kind of interesting. And, and his book came out uh, this year called Personality Isn't Permanent, basically says that the personality tests are not accurate and they should be avoided because they they look at you at a point in time and they look at you based on your reaction. And then if you believe what they're telling you as a, as a methodology to go forward, you can be, um, you can be tricked basically. And, and his assessment is that our personalities change. We're not the same person we were when we were five or we were 10 or we were 30. Uh, we're not the same person to a certain extent we were yesterday and actually maps out a way that you can modify your personality if that's what you want to do. Do you have any sense of, of, of that? You, you've really hit on something I'm super excited and passionate about. So, well, we didn't plan this, but um, yeah, I, I fundamentally believe that uh, going, going and doing hard things turns you into a different person. If you look at the hero's journey, right? So uh, one of my favorite examples, just because it's easy to uh, explain, is uh, Thor Ragnarok. Have you seen that movie by any chance? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll, I'll spoil it for your listeners. Just fast forward 45 seconds. Yeah, let's seconds. do that. <laughs> So, so Thor is such a great character, right? He's, he's just a, like a good guy. He's got some cool superpowers. He goes and fights demons every now and then, but he's just dorking around with his friends, right? And then his sister comes back and he, he really gets it handed to him. And so he has to go back home, go back to his home planet and confront pure evil. And then he wins. And then he can control lightning, He's a complete, the Thor at the beginning of Ragnarok and the Thor at the end of Ragnarok, they're not the same at all. He's got like a cool new haircut, controls lightning, totally more legit. And he loses an eye in that fight. There's a, there's a price that he pays a price, yeah. on that hero's journey. And so I fully believe your experiences shape you into a different person, right? And, and what, the way that I view behavioral assessments, one is they're a metaphor, for how you're wired, uh, for what you have to, uh, what comes naturally to you and what you have to expend energy to achieve. So I can be detail-oriented if I need to be. It just takes a lot of energy for me. Where some of my colleagues, they can't go to bed at night if the, if the Excel spreadsheets aren't, aren't completely like lined up properly. Yes. It's just exactly. a different mentality. And, and other people, uh, you take them to a party with 10 people, 35 minutes in, they want to go take a nap, right? That's not bad. You're just wired differently, but I do. So I think it's like a, a rubber band, right? Like you have to actually expend energy to go and do things that you're not naturally inclined to do. But as you do them, your brain rewires, like physiologically rewires. And then you, it, the next time you do it, it becomes easier. So I do think you, if you play that out again over decades, if you're put into a situation where you have to be more social or more analytical, you play that out over 10 years. Yeah, I think I fundamentally think that you'll change. And so my advice for that would just be take the test again year after year. Uh, there's even psych- psychologists that would say that, that that taints the results. But 
again, this is about knowing yourself, having the vocabulary and trying to be a little bit self-aware and, and introspective. And then most importantly, the, the thing we haven't even gotten into yet is you, can, you now have a vocabulary to assess other people's behaviors and how they're wired. And then you can adapt your style and your behavioral uh, tendencies to match their preferences, which helps build relationships, gain trust, and ultimately work better together over time. So they're still immensely valuable, but yeah, you can't look at them as, as deterministic or, or fixed for always and forever. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have to give a shout out just because I can never stop talking about it. My, my favorite example, and, and I know everybody's going to go, oh, I can't believe you said that. My favorite example of personality changing is Michael Corleone and The Godfather who starts out as being somebody, oh, I'm, I'm just an all-American boy. I don't want to be in the family business. I'm just quiet to turning out to be one of the most evil human beings in, in film history. <laughs> <laughs> or Walter White on Breaking Bad, right? It's the same it's thing. It's the same thing, and, right? And that's, that, that's actually why, and I know you want to talk about kids, so maybe I'll give you a bit of a segue here, where it's really important to me that our kids don't lie. Like, that's the thing we'll come down hardest on because the more you lie the easier it is for you to lie in the future, you're, you're again, literally rewiring your brain for that behavior. And so these little things, they all add up and, and I'm not, I don't feel like I'm smart enough or capable enough to enact any kind of change at a, at a really big level in a big bang step function kind of way. In my mind, the, the move towards uh, extreme positive things or extreme negative things happens one little decision at a time. And those little things matter and they add up. Uh, well, it's, so, it's yeah. interesting, you know, the change to us occurs revolutionary and evolutionary, right? Um, you get in a car accident, it changes you whether you like, you know, if it's severe, it changes you whether you like it or not. All right. Your parent dies. It changes you. These are all revolutionary changes. Work for the most part is an evolutionary change. So, so you're going through all these changes. You realize that that you know maybe you're not who you thought you were. You want to make some some modifications to that that area. You get to a company that nourishes that. All of those things are good. Um, and then children come, and children are revolutionary and evolutionary. The fact that all of a sudden you have responsibility for another human being is the revolutionary part. But it's what they do to you over time that's evolutionary. So so talk to. Let's look at you today uh, from a management perspective and from a leadership perspective and help everybody understand some of the influences and some of the effects that occurred to you through work and then some of the influences and effects on your thinking that has occurred because of your children. So the number one thing that I think about constantly is if there was this camera following me around this little drone flying behind my head recording all of my behaviors at work and then i had to sit down next to my daughter uh and my son so my daughter's seven my son's almost four when they're 18 on their 18th birthday and they got a highlight reel of the the bloopers the the successes the the dumb things i've done the the malicious things i've done i don't want to have to i wouldn't want to have to sit there and, and explain a lot to them. And I can't think of like, it, that's a, that's a major analogy and that's helpful for me because of, of how I'm wired. But it's, I think a lot about, okay, what would my daughter think of me if, uh, if she saw what I was doing right now, or are the things that I'm doing, making the, the world, the professional world, a better place for when my daughter or son enters it. 
and and that actually i'm very competitive like just by nature uh and so that that helped extend the 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 time frame of the problems i'm solving the the decisions i'm making the things i'm doing beyond the the quarter or the week or the deliverable or the earnings report it's like oh what's the, what are the things i'm doing that will play out over the next decade and it's much harder to do or really impossible to do that but i think thinking about those things long term and and the legacy you leave behind and and what your kids would think of you if they watched you at work uh you know especially if they got a play a video playback or something i think that's a really useful exercise and that's kind of what motivates me to make some of the decisions that i'm you know making at this point in my career yeah my my father told me many 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 years ago he said um he said, when, when you're away from us, he said, before you do something, think about what would happen if you're doing that in front of, you know, your future wife, whoever that might be, um, or in front of your parents, and then think about if that's something you want to have to um, come back and explain or not. And that's, yeah, I've done a bunch of those, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about them because I'm not going to explain them, but boy, it's kept me out of a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> Well, and, and the, the nice thing about that, too, is kids uh, forgive. And I think it's really important as a parent to to mess up in front of them and then to circle back and say, hey, you know, that I, I did this in this situation. I was frustrated. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Because te- teaching your kids how to take ownership and responsibility for their actions and, and how to apologize and, and to have the self-awareness to know that they hurt somebody – is really important. So one of the best things you can actually do as a parent is mess up as long as you uh, go back and, and try to make it right. And, and that they want to see that repeated sort of, uh, you know, effort to, to resolve what, what's wrong. And so that, that's a huge area of comfort for me because I'm, I'm always screwing up, but the, the same thing is true in leadership too, where uh, some of the times where I've gotten feedback from my team that they respected me the most was right after I made a colossal mistake and uh, came back and, and took responsibility for it and said I was sorry and I was feeling terrible. And I remember, yeah. what, like I really sort of belittled this one person on my team. I, I, I have like a humor kind of mindset and so I would always use humor to, to make light of tense situations. But when you get role power you can't direct that humor at your at your the people who you have real power over that's just a horrible idea but i know any better i was always used to just poking fun at my team started doing that as a as a new leader luckily got some early feedback very quickly that that was horrible uh and i had really hurt some people's feelings and and came back and said i was sorry and told them i would change and asked them to hold me accountable that if i if they saw me doing that again to please speak up and um you know i I think over the course of a 12, 18 month period, I was able to kick that habit, that bad habit. And that was great. And I felt horrible that whole time. And, and then after the fact, I got a lot of really good feedback from the team that said, hey, th- no, no one I've ever worked with has done that before. I really respect you as a leader because of this. And I was thinking, man, there's something there because I did not feel good during that time. And, and there's other times I feel great, like I just slayed a lion and doesn't seem like anybody cares right and so i right. it's right. uh i think it's just about that just trying to trying to do those the right thing over and over and over again and sometimes you'll get it right and sometimes you won't but you have to keep you have to keep going with it 
So was was the core lesson in that because because I've heard this I've heard this a number of times was was the core lesson in that to to not be yourself was the core lesson in that to be sensitive to the fact that that what we say and what we do isn't received by all people the same way. So certainly there's a level of skepticism, healthy skepticism and um a bit of a magnifying glass applied to you as a leader. People just watch what you do very closely. But what I took from it is humor is such, it's such a powerful thing. And it's, a, it's so core to me that I, I don't think I could really switch that off even if I wanted to. Um, but I, I directed a lot more uh, internally. So self-deprecating or I'll make fun of the people who like I work for, like my bosses, right. Okay. Uh, in a public setting. And so that's, um, that's kind of how those things work out or there, there are ways to be funny and bring levity into, into a situation uh, without having that happen at the expense of someone else's feelings. And so really as a leader, what you can't do is you cannot, you cannot create a situation that where you make fun of someone at their expense. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to work. Right. And you can't, if, if your team is making fun of you, that's such a healthy sign. Like to, to your face. Yes, yes. Uh, and so you, you really can't take yourself seriously, uh, so seriously that that offends you, right? If, if people are making fun of you in a professional setting, 99.99% of the time, that's a, that's a good thing. There are, there are times where it's, that's not healthy, uh, but I would say most of the time, especially if it's your, your sort of subordinates, that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's when they do it behind your back that you're in trouble. <laughs> right, yeah. Interesting. So you have a podcast going. Tell me how that got started. Tell me what that's all about, because that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So just like everyone else stuck at home, uh, created a podcast. It's called Wanna Grab Coffee. Uh, so you can just Google that and you'll find it. Uh, and so really what what happened was it, it, on my in my role right now, I, I can't do anything on my own, right? Like it takes a, it takes a team to get anything done. And being extroverted, like we talked about before, I took for granted completely how often I would have coffee every week. And what that really means is I would, I would just go walking down the hall and find someone I either needed to talk to or, uh, or I really liked. And I'd say, Hey, want to go grab coffee? And we'd go. And there's a, there's a couple of really good coffee shops by our office that make good espresso. And we'd go for 30, 45 minutes and, connect on an interpersonal level, which is great. Uh, and then we would invariably talk about work and policies or how are we going to approach this deal or this solution. And we got, we had some really meaningful, deep conversations during these just little coffee trips. And, and over time, again, those really add up, right? These aren't anything that you, you do once and you make such a big impact. You know, these aren't home runs. We're just hitting singles all the time. And that all went away. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I have more money in my bank account because I buy much less coffee now and I'm probably a little bit healthier, but you really unplugged a lot of work effectiveness. Uh, and so what I'm doing with my uh, colleagues and friends, so Charles and Igor, who are uh, executives in, in our Dallas office with me, we, we called our podcast, Want to Grab Coffee, and we're just recording a coffee chat every week. Uh, and they just go all sorts of different directions. But if you are interested in the kind of things executives talk about. If you're interested in 
how we look at, look at careers, how we look at well-being, uh, those kind of things, work-life balance, and just the, the journey of being on a, on a career path together, then it, it would be a good listen. And I think it's certainly good for us because we get to still have those conversations. Not sure yet if it's worth listening to, but it's certainly worth having the discussion. Sometimes, sometimes the value is exactly that. It's in having the conversation more so than even listening because you are forced to do two things. You're forced to shape your thoughts and you're forced to hear yourself. And sometimes both of those can be a little bit difficult. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> or well, let's put it this way, to do that without repercussions. Because yeah, it's <laughs> easy to do it with repercussions. That's, that's fascinating. So any tips on folks, because you're suffering like everybody else, what are you finding that's working or not working in, in the age of COVID? Because it looks like we're jumping back into it now again. Yeah, well, the one thing that really suffered is my, let's call it work throughput. So just my wife is a scientist and she's uh, got a very involved job as well. And we have two young kids who are home. My daughter's in second grade. She's at her laptop as much as I am every day. Like their school's pretty intense. And I was on a client call yesterday, no, Monday of this week. And uh, it was it was pretty important. Like we're talking about future planning and things like that. And my son, it just has this little soccer ball and he's just like pegging me in the back with it. And then every now and then I'll turn around and I'll, I'll toss it to him and I'll kind of, I'll kind of play with them a little bit. And I was just thinking, well, it's kind of hurts like when he throws it at me, but it's quiet. Like I'm not, if I have to go off mute and say something, it's not going to be just chaos in the background. So I just kind of sat there and let him peg me with the ball. Uh, and so that, and then especially with the kids, like my daughter's really social as well. And it just, it breaks your heart when they can't be around their friends and, and things like that. And so I'm definitely ready for this to be over. But what I, what I would say is if, and, and I can really only speak from the experience of a dual career family with young kids is you have to be, do everything you can to be a good team with your partner, with your spouse. Uh, because if we did not get along right now, things would be much, much worse. And I would say I've screwed up more as a husband, more over the last six, seven months with my wife than I had over any probably six or seven month period. But we we spend three, four times the amount of time together. And I would say there's, she has definitely been good at giving me grace, assuming positive intent. I've been trying to be very quick about apologizing. We talk very regularly about how things are going. Some days we're like, yeah, today sucks. Like, let's just go get some sushi. And mm -hmm. like, it, we're just, we're just surviving today. Um, and then we really try to make up for it on, you know, special events. So every Friday now is pizza party Friday. So I'm going to leave after this and go pick up some pizza for the family. And, and, you know, we try to That's do great. special, <laughs> special events, go outside and play. Um, and so, so there's the, the teamwork with your, your spouse or partner. And then there's the element of play where even if you're, if you, if you don't, you don't have kids, like you have to be having fun, find a hobby, do something that takes your mind off of work, take a break. No one's using their PTO right now me included, right? As much as I, I give right. the advice, I've taken less PTO this year than I ever have. Yeah. Use the, use your PTO, have some fun, go run, go running outside, 
forgive your partner when they mess up and uh, just understand that everyone is struggling right now. And, and what I've seen too is people are not vocal about how deeply they're struggling. I, I know people didn't find out until months later, they lost a loved one because of COVID or yeah. Yeah. their parents are sick in the hospital and they can't go visit them. Yeah. Right. They're quarantined like that. That's terrible. Like we, this is a, uh, people have, are having really terrible experiences right now. So I think the benefit of the doubt and just assuming that everyone is, is trying to do the right thing. It's just a crappy time. So, so blame the time, not the person is uh, I think a good thing. That's, that's great advice. That's great advice on a personal level and, and on a work level. Um, somebody said once that you meet somebody and you have no idea what type and how big the devil is that's living inside of them at the moment. Um, so just give them a, give them a little bit of a wider berth and, you know, send them good thoughts and, and don't, don't try to judge them. Interesting times we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Robert, thank you. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Uh, go get your pizza. I am jealous because I don't think pizza's on our menu tonight, but it might be now. Tell people how they can get oh, yeah. in touch with you. Uh, so yeah, you, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so linkedin.com slash in slash Robert Griner. Yeah, I think it's uh, slash Robert Griner. Yeah, yeah robertgriner.com. Uh, just email me anytime. Like if you have, especially career questions, I, I have definitely had the benefit of some phenomenal mentors in my career, and I would love to sort of pay that forward. Uh, podcast is Want to Grab Coffee, and that's really all the social media I'm on. I try to stay off of the other ones just because they, they tend to be a little bit too much of a time suck. But yes. uh, robertgriner.com, G-R-E-I-N-E-R is probably the best place. Thank you. Go have pizza. All right. Thanks. Take care. Really appreciate it. It was great spending time with you today. Maybe you liked what you heard. Maybe we sparked some controversy. Maybe we got you excited, but hopefully we got you thinking. Hey, we want to hear from you. If the topic resonated with you, if you have a comment, or if you have an issue you're serious about fixing, reach out to us today. Hey, Brian, how can you get in touch with us? Great question, John. Best ways email. Email us at results at onebrokencog.com together we're going to help you make small adjustments that's going to lead to major impacts in your business and your revenue